It was a bounty hunter statute, one that dates back to the Civil War. And it's actually known as Lincoln's Law. The False Claims Act originally was passed to prevent fraud against the Union war effort, and in particular, the Union Army. And it incentivizes people to identify fraud against the government and actually gives them a percentage of the reward. Those who come forward are called whistleblowers, people with inside information on companies they believe are defrauding the U.S. government. But not everyone's intentions are noble. In recent years, we've seen people try to take advantage of the False Claims Act and its potential financial rewards as kind of an investment. In this case, we'll be following the story of a medical record software product caught in the crosshairs by a company formed for the purpose of investing in False Claims Act litigation as a way of making money. It's a company mining data in the healthcare sector that has no inside knowledge of how the hospitals they target do business or care for patients. And there was a lot at stake. The exposures here were very significant. It very much was a bet the product type of litigation. Faced with the potential of a lengthy legal battle, a group of Hogan Lovell's lawyers set out to prove the fundamental flaw in the plaintiff's case and stop the complaint before it was too late. I'm Kate Stetson, and this is Proof in Trial, Season 2, Appellate Edition. Integra Med Analytics, LLC, versus Providence Health and Services. In this day and age, big data is everything. Or is it? That was the question being argued by both sides in this case. To understand the story, we'll need to start at the beginning. Not as far back as the Civil War, but to 2017. That was the year Integra Med Analytics sued a network of hospitals called Providence and a company called J.A. Thomas & Associates, a subsidiary of Nuance Communications, accusing them of overbilling Medicare. Integra Med alleged that Providence had submitted false claims that exaggerated the severity of patients' medical conditions in order to obtain additional revenue from Medicare. Integra Med filed its complaint under the False Claims Act. Now, Integra Med isn't your typical whistleblower. A typical whistleblower in a False Claims Act, or FCA case, is a person who has insider knowledge, someone who works at the company and alerts the authorities to alleged fraudulent or illegal activity. But there's a new type of whistleblower in town. Firms like Integra Med were created to develop algorithms for mining data and to make allegations of fraud based on outliers. Jonathan Diesenhaus, a partner in the Hogan Lovell's Washington, D.C. office, who specializes in FCA cases, explains. What's a trend in recent years is for sophisticated data mining operations to either purchase or otherwise gain access to Medicare, Medicaid claims data, big data sets from the United States government managed by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. You can get a hold of that as a researcher. Sometimes you can purchase it even commercially and you can do analytics to it and you can go hunting for patterns. They peruse this data of claims history for claims submitted to the healthcare programs, and they look for patterns that they think are indicative of something that couldn't be naturally occurring. The reason these new types of companies are popping up is that FCA litigation, if successful, 
can be very lucrative. Because the amount of dollars that the, the government pays under federal health care programs is very significant, there's a real incentive created for people to bring these types of claims. So companies like Integra Med have tried to develop a new business model, searching through data, trying to spot any discrepancies that they think could signal fraud. Armed with what they said their algorithm showed, and with no knowledge or information about any patient's medical condition or medical record, Integra Med asserted that certain Providence hospitals defrauded the government by billing Medicare more often than other hospitals. To Integra Med, hospitals that have a history of outlier claims had to be committing fraud. There could have been no other explanation. And so what Integramed did was to analyze the data that Providence had submitted to CMS, which they acquired because it was publicly available. They ran it through their own analytic tool, which they never identified or explained, and said, oh, our magic box has determined that Providence's coding is statistically abnormal. They've identified more of this condition than would exist in the general public. And so they asserted, based on nothing other than the statistical differences, that Providence therefore must be committing fraud. It must be fraudulently, intentionally, wrongfully coding these conditions that it knew did not exist. That's Mike Madigan, a partner in the Hogan Lovell's Los Angeles office who also worked on the case. Mike knows the Providence Health Network well. He lives near one of the hospitals and knows many people who work there. Providence is a large healthcare network found mostly in the Western United States. It was originally started by a group of nuns in the 1800s. While the network has grown since its more humble beginnings, many of the nonprofit's hospitals have retained a community focus. The way Providence hospitals submitted medical claims caught Integra Med's attention. Providence used products from a company called Nuance to help their doctors accurately document or code the severity of their patients' illnesses with Clinical Documentation Improvement Products, or CDI. I'll let David Greenbaum, Chief Litigation and Intellectual Property Counsel at Nuance, explain. CDI is Clinical Documentation Improvement. That allows healthcare organizations to take a provider's healthcare record, often it's the written notes by the doctor or the nurse, and look for words or diagnoses in that record and assign a code to the patient's visit. The code is important because it not only supports payment for the visit, but it is also useful for broader healthcare-focused services like improving treatment, tracking of diseases, building reference databases, all in a compliant manner. Integra Med's complaint was based on three codes that it said occurred more frequently in Medicare bills from certain Providence hospitals than others, claiming these outliers must mean those hospitals were committing fraud. If it must be fraud, then a company like our client shouldn't be in the business. It doesn't make sense because they're creating the evidence Integramed is relying on. That was a significant, you know, 
back-of-mind concern about this case. It was a concern of David's as well, and he was frustrated by the complaint. There was frustration on two levels. On the first level, in terms of the product, Nuance would have to defend a product that we knew was promoting of patient care and critical to improving treatment. On the other hand, we also knew that the defense would be very costly. The exposures here were very significant. The complaint alleged damages of almost 200 million based on just one hospital system. And Nuance has dozens and dozens of hospitals and hospital systems across the country. The exposures were large and the sense was the cost of defense for each one of these matters would be overwhelming. David decided to turn to outside counsel for help. Mike first heard about the case through a partner in the San Francisco office who had worked for Nuance in the past. The case had been filed in the Central District Court of California in Los Angeles, a court Mike was very familiar with. He also had extensive experience in both the healthcare sector and with the False Claims Act. Mike and his colleague reached out to Jonathan Diesenhaus, who you heard from earlier, and Jessica Ellsworth, an appellate partner, both of whom work in Washington, D.C. The legal team they assembled had significant experience with the FCA, and together, the team of lawyers on both coasts, sitting almost 3,000 miles apart, began to piece it all together. The strategy from Hogan Lovells, as articulated by Jessica Ellsworth, was there was a good opportunity to defend the case or have the case dismissed at the early pleading stages based on the insufficiency of plaintiff's claims. And that required an excellent application of the law related to False Claims Act, what was necessary. Uh, Certainly that law in the context of the insufficient factual allegations. The case was assigned um, in the district court to a very highly regarded district court judge, uh, Philip Gutierrez. He's the chief judge of the district, very well thought of by lawyers and other judges. And he had had himself um, a number of very high profile False Claims Act cases and had written uh, some opinions previously in the area. It was the first time David had been involved in an FCA case, but the lawyers knew from experience that this sort of complaint can balloon into a massive, lengthy journey to clear the defendants' names as plaintiffs go down rabbit hole after rabbit hole in a quest to find fraud somewhere. When this sort of False Claims Act case goes into discovery and proceeds beyond a complaint, it is a very resource-intensive and time-consuming project to defend. It requires diverting a lot of resources to making document productions, reviewing emails, going carefully through patient records here, you know, complicated by having to make sure all patient privacy is protected at every point along the way. And these cases are very costly to defend. So this was extremely important to the 34 hospitals that were named as defendants. It was also important to nuance. If we couldn't clear the product from the allegations that plaintiff was making about Medicare upcoding and the promoting of false diagnoses, we could not continue to offer the product in the market. Hospitals were buying Nuance's product to enable them to better treat patients and gain efficiencies. And that could never work 
if there was a constant need to defend the product against those types of false claims. The lawyers filed a motion to dismiss, which is basically asking the court to throw out the case, but it was ultimately rejected by the district court. However, when addressing those motions, the court made two significant rulings. The first ruling had to do with whether the complaint sufficiently alleged fraud. The legal term for that is plausibility, whether the complaint plausibly alleged a False Claims Act violation. The team argued the complaint had not done so for a fundamental reason. The complaint was perfectly consistent with a perfectly innocent (laughs) series of events, which is that Providence paid attention to its coding based on the products, services sold by our client, that, that Providence's coding was accurate, and that it reflected the true condition of the patients and population that it treated even though that population might have been statistically different in some ways from the general population. The district court rejected that argument. The second issue had to do with where Integra Med had gotten its information. So we argued that um, the, the complaint also should be dismissed and was barred because this was all publicly available information, available from the internet, available through the news media. And so that was the second major argument that we made. The district court also rejected that argument. However, in rejecting that argument, the court did something unusual. It wrote an original opinion, attempting to come to grips with what it perceived to be uncertainty in the law about what type of information on the Internet should be considered publicly disclosed in order to bar a False Claims Act case. The district court was particularly interested in a use of the term news media that occurs in the statute and whether the internet is news media. The court acknowledged that it was ruling on the scope of news media in a very different way than other courts had done in the past. And that was what ultimately kept this case alive. Because the court was taking kind of a unique and novel approach to the statute, it also granted our request to seek an immediate appeal of that ruling. And so we did. This was an unusual move and where it gets a bit technical, so bear with me. Typically, if a court rejects a motion to dismiss, the case goes into discovery. And as just said earlier, discovery is time-consuming and expensive, involving the piece-by-piece review of potentially thousands of documents and gigabytes of data. But instead, the lawyers asked the district court's permission to make an interlocutory appeal, an appeal at the beginning of a case, rather than at the end, where appeals usually happen. Their argument was that if there was a question of law that, if resolved, would end the case, then it wouldn't make sense to move forward with discovery. And so the court granted permission to appeal both rulings. David was confident that the team would win at appeal. Even with the denial of our motion to dismiss, I had a good amount of calm and confidence related to our case. And that's because I really felt that the law and the facts were on our side. The team got back to work preparing to argue the case in front of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, a federal court of appeals with jurisdiction over a number of U.S. district courts in nine states and two U.S. territories. To do that, there had to be one lawyer that would present their argument in front of a panel of judges who may not have any knowledge or experience with the False Claims Act. 
the person arguing the appeal had to be able to explain the law and the facts as clearly as possible. They decided the best person for the job was Jess. Jess has a lot of experience explaining the False Claims Act. She recognizes the audience doesn't eat, drink, and breathe False Claims Act litigation and can simplify the concept. But before Jess could argue the case, she had to prepare for how to present her argument remotely. Because the case was being argued during the pandemic, Jess had to address the panel of judges in Pasadena over Zoom. Um, and Pasadena is one of the prettiest courthouses in the country that I've ever been to. It's this very small, quaint courthouse. And so I really was disappointed to not have a reason to go spend time there. But instead, I got to go to my office in downtown D.C., which in a pandemic was not something I was doing every day, and carefully log my computer in to make sure that I wasn't going to have any Zoom challenges. Jess also had to consider what seems like a very simple question, but came with its own set of challenges. Should she sit or stand? Because obviously when you're in court, you stand. But on a Zoom argument, I found if you stand, you end up shifting a little bit your weight from one foot to the other, and it's very distracting when your head is then bobbing around the screen. So I decided I would sit for it, which is, you know, brings its, its own um, mental challenges where you think I'm sitting to address a group of judges this is very strange. When she addressed the three judges, seated, Jess was prepared for both arguments. One was the meaning of the term news media. The other was the plausibility issue. The judges had lots of questions, but only seemed to want to focus on the plausibility issue. Was there sufficient evidence to allege fraud? We had to convince the Ninth Circuit that you couldn't infer it intent from data alone. Um, and one of our arguments was really to, to think about what it would mean if anyone could file a lawsuit against a hospital or another healthcare facility based on just data and claim it was fraud and that that would really be a very bad situation for the industry to be in if something more wasn't required before allowing a, a fraud suit to go forward and impose all sorts of you know, costs and divert resources. And this was all happening during COVID, which I think, you know, for these hospitals in particular, we had to seek a number of briefing extensions because the hospitals simply, their, their lawyers were frankly tied up dealing with many complications of providing COVID for overwhelmed hospitals in, in California and, and Oregon and Washington. Though it took time to learn the outcome, Jess had impressed the judges and her colleagues. During the Ninth Circuit argument, Jess Ellsworth was really amazing. It was really an extraordinarily skilled performance that she provided or argument that she delivered. Um, the court asked uh, a lot of specific and pretty difficult questions. It was clearly familiar with the record and the issues. And Jess had real command of the room, even on Zoom, and was extremely impressive. Now all they could do was wait. They didn't know if the panel would reach a decision within weeks or months. And there's no way to know a decision is coming except to sit at your desk and have it pop up on your email that you've gotten a, a message from the Court of Appeals that a decision is out. And it always makes my heart stop when that happens. Jess and the team finally received that email about a month and a half later. The Ninth Circuit ordered the district court to dismiss the case. 
they had won. Winning this case was critically important to Nuance. It was more than just clearing the product. It was also about avoiding significant damages and protecting the many hospital customers that we had. The Hogan Lovells team agreed. This was a case in which we definitely felt like we were on the side of the angels. It really did feel like our clients were the good guys, and we were glad that we were able to help fight off what would have been really a parasitic, or a, maybe if you wanted to call it a more favorably, at least an entrepreneurial attempt to create a new type of business to use public data to try to recover money from people who are trying to make the health system work better. It felt great. We felt vindicated. It was a big relief that the Court of Appeals got it, saw the, the limits of data, and found a really quick and easy, clean way to say, you just didn't come to court with enough evidence of fraud to allow you to go forward and go fishing for it. For Jess, this win wasn't just for their client, it was also for the patients. Patients move, patients seek care at a different period in time, and so having complete medical records that they can take with them, and this is something the CDC has recognized, as we pointed out to the court and in our brief, there are lots of benefits, and it's the reason these payment systems have moved towards incentivizing complete and accurate records. There are lots of benefits that flow from having available to patients and other medical professionals complete and accurate records. This case reinforced what I've known and learned over more than 20 years in litigation practice, that it is critical to have subject matter experts and the right team representing you. It's very rare that the Ninth Circuit would even take up that type of an opinion, and even rarer that it would reverse with instructions to dismiss. And so that's very rare with the respected judge at this stage of the case. And I think it's a real tribute to Jess's argument. You can find more information about our appeals team at hoganlevels.com. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Proof in Trial, Appellate Edition. Until next time, I'm Kate Stetson, and thank you for listening.